G'day humans, welcome to Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. What will become of us all as people, as a society, as a culture? Are we on the right track? It's hard to know, but there are certain things that we're doing as a people, as peoples, which are probably not conducive to the long-term survivability of our species. Are we really getting our heads and our arms around the challenges that we face? Or are we squabbling and bickering and becoming tribal and silly? You know the answer to that question. You can feel it deep down in your bones. You know that something's a little bit off. You know that something's a little bit awry. That's why you listen to sane people like me. Another sane person is Tim Urban, who has been on the show once before. And if you haven't listened to that, it's one of my favorite episodes still of this podcast. Mind expanding, brain exploding, cosmic level shit. Uh, so when he hit me up and said, hey, Zeps, hey, Zeppity, hey, Zepperoonie, hey, Zef, he didn't call me any of those things, and I encourage you not to either. He said, I've got a book coming out. It's called What's Our Problem? A Self-Help Book for Societies. Uh, I inhaled the book. I adored it. I thought, this is fantastic. I want to talk to him without any further ado to noodle on the greatest questions that civilization faces, how to reconcile the woke with the right and resurrect a spirit of liberalism that is convincing and appealing to all, I give you the one and only Tim Urban. been buried in trying to finish a book and mm. now i have finished the book so that is a nice <laughs> development yeah that's better than the alternative <laughs> of throwing your arms up in the air and going fuck this thing i'm never gonna get this done i don't care anyway yeah you're not my exactly. mommy you don't control me you're not my daddy exactly uh <laughs> well it's great um i love i i'm so happy that the book is also the same uh, style as the blog i wasn't sure if you were going to try to like put on a, a wonky hat and pontificate a little bit more uh, but uh, I like the fact that there are cartoons. But what I might... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm most interested in what, what, what made you want to come out as a white supremacist after all these years. Well, I was, you know, I, I just... Uh, it was always in me, and <laughs> I, 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 I just eventually couldn't hold it in anymore. You're like, the, you know what hasn't happened enough? White, straight males haven't been talking enough, and I'm going to write a book about uh, why we have to think straight. Um, That's right. I kid you. That's right. I kid you. But nonetheless, there will be some people who'll take it that way. Correct, for sure. Does that bother you? And and and, and it's like and it well it, it's it's I mean if you think about what that means, um, if you feel that pressure, so of course I felt the pressure. You know, you know, write about any other topic. Mm. Why this topic? Mm. Um, and with all the shit I'm going to get, but then I'm thinking about well. Who who's giving me shit? It's not my like readers, not my main readers who love when I you know go nuanced and talk about whatever you know. They're, they're, it's not they have no problem. So it's other people, or it's a very small minority of my readers, and it's just a certain group of people who. Um, it's not just that they disagree because a lot of people will disagree with points. It's a specifically it's a specific very small subset of the people who disagree, who want to pressure people who disagree with them to be silent. And they're going to make it so unpleasant for people to, to, to disagree with them that they make the decision not to. And so when I felt that pressure, I realized like that's what's happening is there's a small group of, of bullies that are that that, you know, that that I'm feeling the pressure of the of 
uh, and I don't, I was like, you know, that's not a reason to drive my writing decisions no. based on. And yet um, it does drive so much. Bullies. I mean, it, it's amazing how many people I know who are in the same position as you and I find ourselves, who behind, who behind closed doors, when you get brunch with them, say, oh, I wish I could write something about this. I wish I could say something about this. But, oh, you know, it's, uh, it's just too hard. I know the mob is going to come for me. Uh, and I think what you're saying is exactly right, which is a bit similar to what Peter Singer, the philosopher, said uh, when I was at an event with him recently, which became an episode of this podcast, which if people haven't heard, they should go back and listen to that because he's fascinating. And he was like, it's pretty simple. It like, are you responding when I was asking him about getting shit cancel culture wise? He was like, are you responding to my arguments or are you just saying that the existence of my arguments means that I should be deplatformed without actually making a cogent case against my arguments? He was like, that's the difference. He was like, I welcome all pushback against everything, but make an argument. Don't just say that I shouldn't have the right to it's even also, talk about it. it it's 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 that and it's also it's the difference between someone who says those are terrible arguments and here's why right um or or even those are terrible arguments so i won't read this or i won't pay attention or i'll unfollow you those are there's nothing wrong with either of those in fact the first one is great you know like that's what makes a society smart is people saying that these are bad arguments and here's why right that's that's how we get smarter um it's it's specifically someone who says those are bad arguments. So you're a bad person who needs to be punished. And so it's the attacking specifically of the person, mm, mm. not the arguments. Yeah, yeah. Those are the people that we should not be letting drive anything. Yeah. And then, of course, they all come back and say, well, what if the argument was we should burn all the Jews? You know, what should you do about Nazis? Shouldn't you be critical of Nazis? Uh, and then I would concede that, uh, yes, right. once you've addressed the argument, once you've addressed using argument why we shouldn't burn all the Jews... Uh, then you're allowed to be mean to Nazis. But until then, maybe just stick yeah, with the arguments. Yeah. Uh, the, um, yeah. So what is your – so the, for people who haven't seen the book and who may not even be familiar with you uh, except through your wonderful work on this very show, what is your argument? Well, um, it, it, it's my, my – the way I see a liberal society is it's kind of like a machine that, you know, is very complex and – relies on a bunch, you know, very, very complicated system of laws and rules, but also relies on a very nuanced system of norms and behavior and, 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 and values that are kind of commonly shared, uh, liberal values, liberal, lowercase l, liberal, like, um, you know, but, you know, the, the, the core concepts of individual rights and free speech and free markets and equal opportunity uh, and open discourse and the marketplace of ideas, all of that stuff that I think most Americans, if you polled them, would say, yeah, like regardless of my politics, I'm a lowercase liberal. So it, it, it's this kind of this machine that's a combo of rules and norms, the rules up, upheld by the government, the norms upheld by the citizens. And it's and it's in one hand very robust. It's, they last a long time. They, they, they respond. They're resilient in the face of challenge. On the other hand, you know they're not airtight. They can be uh, they you they can be broken. You can and 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 they can be uh, a liberal society. That machine can be if a group is you know uh, if they set out to damage the system, like they can, and that's why the system has kind of an immune system, like a like a like an organism. And the immune system, as I was just saying, is made up of people who share these values, these liberal values, who will stand up for them. Um, 
in the face of the threat. And so that that's part of why they're robust, because, you know, in another country, an illiberal group of people could have maybe a bunch of guns and, and you know, machetes or whatever it is, and they can make it, you know, they can really take over the country with that because people are so scared. It, you can't use the guns and the machetes here. And so you have to use kind of soft bullying, social bullying. And um, and so usually, you know, the, 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 the system can handle it. But the reason I wrote this book uh, is that I feel like over the last few years, especially, you know, I started this in 2016 when I started to really feel it. The system is starting to break down. The immune system is not doing its job. And that's why I think it explains a bunch of current political stories that span the political spectrum. And I think what they all have in common is that the kind of the liberal um, you know, mechanics are not standing strong right now. And, um, and illiberal groups are taking advantage. And so that was the initial point. As I said, what's our problem? Why is this happening now? What's exactly happening? Is it really as bad as I think it is? How do we get out of it? And that was uh, that's what got me writing. How did you make sure that the rabbit hole, that rabbit hole of thought, doesn't open up and swallow you up and turn you into James Lindsay? And all of a sudden, there are conspiracy theories everywhere with a, a global elite that is that is our puppet masters coordinating a pandemic uh, and undermining Western values. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, but in, in this case, that, that, that wasn't something that I, I, I don't think <laughs> that's I, not look, exactly, I don't think any, but the, the point that's is, not the nub of your concern. Well, well, the truth is everyone who is, um, kind of, um, fallen too far down conspiracy theory land, uh, they don't believe they are. So maybe I am, and I'm totally <laughs> unself-aware, but I don't think I am. I think, I, I, I I think if anything, like this, this process has made me feel because I think, you know, so what is it when, when someone is so sure, because it's not that look conspiracy, sometimes there are conspiracies. Yeah. So some conspiracy theories are correct or based in some semblance of truth, right? Yeah, so it's yeah. not that yeah, conspiracy theories are necessarily bad. It's that people who believe them too readily and too often and with and that, that's not good. And the, 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 what that says to me is there's a lack of humility because um, if you have, if you have some semblance of humility, you're, you're going to stay, I don't know a lot. And I think the kind of, you know, profile you're talking about is someone who says, doesn't say, I don't know very often. They say, oh, I know, oh, I know what's happening and you all, you all don't know, but this is, and that's just not, I don't know. It's not my personality, but also writing this book has really, if anything, made me feel more humble about what I know. And, and the, the, the only thing that I feel really strongly about, like in terms of actual policy, you know, I, I have some view, viewpoints and other ones I would say I'm not sure what I think. But um, this book isn't about you know, specific policies or, or something. It's much more about um, the, things like broad things. Like I think free speech is not just important, but I think it is a critical function like oxygen to a human, mm. to a healthy liberal democracy. That I feel very strong about. And what and, I love and, about it, Tim, is, I, that, yeah. is you, as always, you go back so far to first principles. I mean, the thing is, like, there are a lot of people wringing their hands about the, the fate of liberalism and the fate of Western democracy and can we and the fate of civility and are we all going to be nice and are we going to get along and free speech is important, it's a core belief and liberal values and the Enlightenment and everything. And I can see when people talk about that that, that people's eyes glaze over a little bit and there's a little cartoon version of themselves standing on their shoulder going, well, yeah, that's all very well. Those ideals also served to entrench a fairly unjust system 
for a long time, and they were also used by people who were in fa- who were total hypocrites, who might have been in favour of slavery or even Jim Crow, or who might have been quite sanguine about the genocide of First Nations people, or about the fact that women were completely not represented in the hallways of power. So that's fine, but we also need some some kind of an equity reckoning as well to make things better today. And instead of saying, well, yes, but don't go too far, which is what most people (laughs) respond with, you actually go right back to first principles and go, okay, what makes a good argument a good argument? How would we know if we were on the right track or the wrong track? What has worked like if human history were a 1000 page book which is like one of your favorite one of my favorite thought experiments of yours um so why don't we why don't we do that uh, just remind people of the 1000 page book analogy and then i want to get to today sure um so yeah i mean i like to zoom out i think zooming out <laughs> to start a book to start a blog post to start any thought process is good right it's like to me it's the you know the reason that we can see you know, we have at least some idea of what happened in history is because we have hindsight. And to me, it's a little like, you know, imagine you're on a beach and you're trying to figure out the shape of the coastline. Are you on a big, you know, someone just plops you on a beach. You have no idea where you are. Are you on an island? Is it a huge island? Are you on a continent? Uh, It's hard to know what's going on. And how could you figure it out? Well, if you somehow had a helicopter and you could go up, 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 Oh, okay. Now I can see more. And you go up even higher. Okay. Now I can see the whole, the whole story. Right. And, um, and so in, when we look at history, we have a little bit of that hindsight. It's like, we're kind of up in a helicopter looking at the situation, but when you're in the present, you don't have that. You are just looking around trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And I think that it's hard for people to, it's hard to know, uh, in your own time, what the big story is in a hundred years. When people look back on the 2020s and the 2010s, it's going to look like something. There'll be a clearer story about what was really going on, but, but that, you know, that's fine for them, but we need to figure it out now because we're actually driving the story that those people are not, they're looking at what happened. We can actually do something about it, but we also have the least good view of it. So I like to zoom out. And the way I did it with the beginning of this book, as I said, all right, let's just like zoom out on human history for a second, just to just, just to orient ourselves to what the hell's going on. So what we, you know, we think it's maybe between 200 and 300,000 years old, depending on exactly what you're you know calling the borderline. So I said, okay, just say 250,000 years and let's make, you know, a thousand pages, each one with 250 years on it. If you wrote human history in a thousand page book. Um, and it was pretty amazing when you look at it like that, because first of all, it's almost all, you know, small tribes of hunter gatherers. That's who we were for almost all of human history. Um, and then you get to around 10,000 years ago, you start to have early agriculture and cities and, um, and, you know, recorded history only starts on page like 975 out of a thousand. Um, and so almost everything we think of as modern civilization developed in the last 5% of this book, five, you know, three, three to 5% of this book. And the crazier thing to me is comparing the very last page. So page 1000. So according to this, we're at the very end of page 1000 right now, about to embark onto the page 1001. And if you think of it that way, and you compare page 1000 to all the pages before you, you understand that. You know, it seems like it's naive to think we live in such a special time. Oh, everyone thinks that about their time. But no, we actually do because page 1000 was the first page. This goes back to maybe 1770, right? 1773 is Mm -hmm. 250 years ago. So all of U.S. history and all modern democracies, they all existed only on page 1000. Modern transportation, modern communication, anything like that. All electricity, 
The power was always out until page 1000. Uh, everything that we define as our modern world is extremely new. Like, and what, the reason it all, it, 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 it's all so, so much has happened on this page is that technology you know, grows exponentially. And at some point, you kind of hit a tipping point where things start going really, really fast. So even in our lifetimes, like we witnessed the birth of the internet, the birth of mobile phones and social media and AI, like, and so many crazy world changing things, like just paradigm shifts are, there's a paradigm shift mm. starting every year in a whole different part of the tech world. So the, the, this was my, my, my one thought I had, right? So tech is ex growing exponentially. Then the next thought I had was, that's not necessarily good or bad because more tech creates countless goods, right? Life, quality of life and medicine and prosperity and GDP per capita and life expectancy. And all of these things just go up exponentially in the last century. On the other hand, more technology brought us the biggest world wars of all time, brought us the biggest existential threat of all time in the 20th century with nuclear weapons and climate change and AI and all of this. And so the good is getting better, but the bad is getting scarier. And so if you could sum that up by saying the stakes either way are getting higher. Mm. So it's because of tech, the stakes are getting higher. Now couple that with what I was seeing around my society, which is that I was seeing wisdom seems to be going down. We are acting, we're, 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 we're acting illiberal in a way that um, has not served other people in the past. We are, you know, public shamings are back in fashion. Like, um, politicians are getting more clownish. Like truth is on the decline. Media is not what it used to be, right? Media used to be much more trustworthy. Trust in general in our institutions is at an all-time low right now, or not all-time, but at least in the last 50 years. So this is awful. Well, the just to push back, higher. I'm not, sure that, I'm not sure that media yeah. is more trustworthy, uh, was more trustworthy. M media used to be more trusted. I think that the, the institutions, the reputable institutions of media are probably just as worthy of being trusted as they were in the, or, or more as they were in the 1950s say when they had a more covert I'm handshake not, with people in positions not sure of power. Sure I agree with that. Anyway. Okay so so yes, we can I, I will that, but I will agree with you on one I'm talking front, about which is that National Public the, Radio, you know, the pine... British Broadcasting Corporation, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and maybe the Times and uh, even you know the the reporting of the Wall Street Journal if not the top ed page and and, uh, and so on. But Yes, yeah, so let's 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 take the la the lack of trust as being at least as great a liability as a lack of trustworthiness, and then we agree. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. I, th I think the lack of trust is is a big deal. I I think like the media, you could say, you know, I think people pine for the the you know the Cronkite days, the Brokaw days, and, and I think that that you know that's at least in the U.S. These were these giant you yeah. know, national broadcasting stations, right? And I think, sure, they definitely had some, you know, who knows what, you know, what their deep down motives were and whether they were always telling the truth, but they had some semblance of neutrality and some semblance of professionalism. And they had 20, six, 30 minutes a day to tell the news. So they focused on big news. And today you have these 24 hour news networks that no longer cater to the whole country. They mm, cater to, mm. they cater to very specifically to one political tribe. Yeah. And I'm not truth, including if, that. If NBC, <laughs> I'm not including, well, that, but I'm not including a, lot media, a lot of people yeah. today. 
are getting their media from MSNBC, from Fox News, from CNN, from Breitbart, from the Huffington Post, yes. from Twitter. Yeah. And you just I think you're more likely to see a non-fact-checked, not professional journalism job in these headlines you're seeing than you used to. So I, mean, yeah, I, I think yeah, it's, right, a, it's right, a combo of both. You're saying. Uh, um, yeah, no, I guess I'm just saying that like The Economist still exists and uh, you know the London Review of Books still exists and the New York Review of Books still exists and the New Yorker still exists. But what percentage of people are getting their news from one of those really kind of professional things? It's just the percentage has gone down. Yeah, so many true. people are getting their news from from very biased kind of tribal sources. Mm. So yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, I, I don't disagree with you uh, on all fronts there, I, but I, I I think it's it's so there's so many institutions that are a not what they used to be, but like you said, b even the institutions that are pretty good still are less trusted. And, and just that's on, probably and the even bigger. Problem. The other thing that I'll throw into the point about how quickly things are changing and how critical it is that we have our wits about us at this particular point in time is, and I've, I've mentioned this before. I don't remember if I mentioned it when we were chatting or on another podcast. But when my grandmother died, I went back from she was it was the eve of her 100th birthday. She was in New Zealand. I was, I'd been planning to, to come for her 100th birthday. She died on, no, actually I wasn't going to come. That was the point. I sent a card instead. And then I, I accidentally, I beat the card because I was there for her funeral instead of her birthday card arriving before me. Uh, so I flew from New York to Auckland, attended her funeral, came back via Greece where a friend of mine was living in Athens and uh, spent a weekend there. And I'm wandering around the Agora, the birthplace of democracy, and like standing on the northwest slopes of this hill where humans came for the first time ever to with the radical idea of actually sorting things out by talking to each other about them and trying to figure out communally what to do instead of just obeying what the you know the cosmically divined emperor was telling them to do and I'm like, wow, the age of this thing, the ancientness of Western democracy and Western civilization. And then I was like, well, hang on. It's 40 times 100 years. It's 4,000 years. It's 40 nanas. It's 40 nanas lifespans. So my nana, back to back, her lifespan, you only have to have to go back 40 to get to the very first... In example of Western democracy and Western, you know, I suppose liberal thought. It's only 20 nanas to get back to Jesus. It's only a couple of nanas to get back to the Enlightenment. And it's only one nana to get back to the Gallipoli campaign and then the invention of nuclear weapons, the evolution of flight, the entire space race. That's a one person's lifespan. And when you give the analogy at the beginning of this book, Tim, where you're talking about the 1,000-page book where each page is 250 years, I mean, it's very funny because you have like a little cartoon of a dude who's, who's reading <laughs> the transition between page, say, 760 and 761. And the dude's saying, oh, wow, that tree is 14 feet taller. Or between pages 992 and 993, the person's going, whoa, the Romans really went for it. What great buildings. AD is way cooler than BC. And then page 998 to 999, you get gravity, galaxies, human rights, the Western Hemisphere, like all of that. And then everything that my grandmother ever experienced is on the final third of the final page. And that's basically the dawn of people living lives that would be 
truly recognisable to us. In other words, the post-war period. So those are the stakes. That is the pace. That is the you know the legacy that we need to to take on from our forebears and and move forward with is a terrifyingly rapidly changing legacy, and we have to be as well equipped as we possibly can be to to deal with the threats and opportunities that it throws up. So I'm glad that we've now that's just my contribution to your laying the lay of the land. Um, now take us through maybe the easiest way is to go through the sort of steps that you take in the book and talk about the ladder and liberal games and the downward spiral. Yeah. So I, the, I created a, cause I, I was thinking that, you know, I think part of the problem is I think our conversations about this, both my personal ones and ones I see on TV and in podcasts and whatever on Twitter, they're really constrained. I, I think like, you know, when I look at politics or really any other line of argumentation, I, it's people are so focused on, what you think, you know, here's what I think, here's what you think, who's right, who's wrong. That all to me is a a horizontal axis situation. So we have left, right, center in politics, right? That's a horizontal one-dimensional axis. And in general, you could lay out the range of what you think on a spectrum um, on most issues, even if it's oversimplifying a bit, it's a what you think axis, right? So I, I was like, how about we create a how you think axis and we put it next to it. So we have a square now a vertical axis. And I call that the ladder. And I, I, the, 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 what I started to think is, you know, what, what, what makes, what, what are the different ways people think? And, and, and it came down to me, there's kind of two parts of our brain. And, you know, I'm not saying this as a neuroscientist, I'm saying this as a human who understands his own thinking, or, um, you know, what it's like to be in my own brain. And I know, and, and, and it, and to me, so I procrastinate a lot because there's two parts of my brain. There's one part, the kind of rational part that says we should work now. It's 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. Obviously, this is a great time to work. And then there's another part that self-defeats that says, nope, we're not going to work now because it's not because it's bad. It's not trying to hurt me. It, it's it's confused. It is what I, you know, it's it's what I would call the primitive mind. And this primitive mind um, is is an ancient part of our brain that that doesn't, that has not been updated since, you know, um, civilization sprung upon us really quickly and our brains have not adjusted. So this primitive mind is this piece of software that is that thinks we live in 50,000 BC and it doesn't want to work hard on a book because there were no books in 50,000 BC. You weren't working on a project that was going to come out a year from now. You were, you were trying to fulfill your immediate needs. And so that's what it's really good at. And so procrastination, I think, is a battle between this ancient software and uh, that, that doesn't understand the concept of long-term work and wants to conserve energy and the rational part that sees what's going on and realizes you need to get to work. The same thing goes for when we eat unhealthy. I use the example of Skittles. Like um, why do we ever eat Skittles? They're awful for you. There's nothing good about them for nutrition wise. <laughs> it's funny that delicious. you use the example so, of Skittles. Cause I just wolfed down a bag of Skittles last night. So that was I mean, my they're dessert, so good, my but what, what it, it's, the primitive brain in your head, your, your primitive mind thinks that Skittles, because it hasn't been updated, if you found anything with the texture and the chewiness and the flavor of Skittles back in 50,000 BC, you want to eat it because that is some delicious calorie-dense food that you mm. might not get calories for two weeks. It's an incredible berry. Imagine coming across a Skittle tree. 
You'd be like, this is the best trade. I mean, this is obviously you would have the... been very popular. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I would have been capitalism. There would have been lots capitalism. of wars, bloody wars, <laughs> bloody battles fought over that tree. <laughs> exactly. So, I would have been there know, like Shylock and, and, and or Fiddler so on the roof, just selling Skittles out of my bag next and hoarding the tree for, for all. Uh, but carry on. Right. And then you'd give all the ancient people diabetes. <laughs> um, but so, but so we end up with diabetes now because we, we have this brain that does not really understand what's going on and it tries to do the right thing by you know, eating the foods that you want, conserving energy, whatever. Now, I took this concept that is kind of the, the higher mind that can see what's going on and wants to do what makes sense, and the primitive mind, which is a piece of software that doesn't understand the world you're in and is trying to survive in 50,000 BC, even though you live today. I took that paradigm and I said, how do we apply it to thinking, to our ideas? And I realized that I think the same thing is going on. I think that the way the primitive mind wants to form beliefs is wants to form the same, you know, first of all, the same beliefs as the people around you. So they wants to fit in and believe what the tribe believes. It wants to confirm those beliefs. It wants to feel conviction and express conviction about how right we are. And it wants to attach your, your identity to it. Those beliefs are part of who you are. And the people who don't believe what you believe, they're not just wrong. They're bad people. They're those kind of people. And we're mm. these kind of people who believe these things. And of course, you would, if you think that way, that, that, that brain would never want to change its mind because then your, your whole identity shatters and your whole tribal connection. And now your self-esteem is tied to being the good person who believes the good things. So you identify with them, they, kind of, they become sacred beliefs to you. They become mm. stitched to who you are. And I just want now, to make an analogy. Mind. Let me just make another analogy there to, the, to Skittles as well. There is there's something compelling and juicy and delicious and caloric about an idea that makes you feel like you're on the right side of history and like you're not only correct but good. You know what I mean? Like... It's it's all very well for me to hold an idea in my head like, uh, oh, I don't know, Saturn is larger than Neptune. But that doesn't make me feel good. For me to feel good, I need an idea that has more moral cogency than than that. And so an, an idea about something that something that's political, something that's cultural, something that's tribal, something that involves discrimination against other people or a threat to my way of life, something that in, in, involves all that is good and pure versus things that are sinful and impure or something that involves uh, appeals to egalitarianism and to decency and to fairness over hierarchy and and evil, like all of those things, like there's just a juiciness, there's a skittlesiness to many of the uh, yes, many of the ideas that make us feel why? good. The reason is because the, those things you mentioned, those were all related to life and death a long, long time ago. While right. Saturn was not. And there's actually an interesting study that, you know, you, they use an MRI and pe on people, and when they have their non-political beliefs challenged, the kind of rational parts of their brain light up. And when they have their political beliefs challenged, whole different parts of their brain, the kind the mm. parts that I deal with identity and internal focus light up because it's a different part of our brain to process as it. And those beliefs, of course, are way less likely to change. Right. People get angry and defensive and emotional when those beliefs are challenged. And of so course, when much we less likely to change their <laughs> when, mind. When when we did believe that uh, that like the god of Neptune really did have have agency in the cosmos, then we probably were really offended when people said nasty things about Neptune. 
Yeah, I mean, if we thought it had to do with the afterlife or it yeah. had to do with some powerful being that had power over us and our well-being, then yeah, I'm sure yeah. we did. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. It's, it's whatever has to do with survival. So we've got all these ideas. So right, so where, so, yeah, so one we... part of your brain is trying to identify with the ideas and not change your mind. The same exact part of your brain that wants to eat those Skittles. Now, the other part of your brain, the one that says, let's not binge on Skittles because that's a bad decision. That same part of your brain thinks totally differently. That part of your brain does what makes sense. Just like it doesn't make sense. It makes sense to not eat too many Skittles. It also makes sense to form your beliefs based on evidence and to be humble because you know from experience how often people are wrong and how complex it is things are and how hard it is to gain knowledge. And you're, of course, you're willing to change your mind when you're thinking rationally because what is, what is changing your mind? You have a mental model in your brain, like a little machine you've built. And you want that machine to be accurate. You want it to be true. That's, that's how it's going to serve you and others if you know have the truth. And if someone comes along and says, you're wrong about this, that higher mind in your head is not going to be offended or angry or defensive. It's going to say, oh, you think my machine's broken? Well, I don't think so. Show me why. Well, kick it. Kick it. Try to break it. And if that person can successfully break your machine and say, you know what? See, I, I pointed out a fatal flaw. You wouldn't say you're an asshole. You'd say, thank you. Wow. Amazing. I, I like, I, uh, I, I, I just got a little smarter because of you. I just mm. updated. I just got a software update in my head and I'm a bet- my brain's a little better off forever. Tim, do you so know Dawkins? We're neither of these. Dawkins' familiar anecdote about yeah. this. Yeah, where he says, in fact, I'm, uh, if people are listening to this, uh, then I am just about to do uh, a Dawkins event in Brisbane. So if you're in Brisbane then, and there are still tickets left, then uh, I'm, next week I'm doing, uh, I'm doing Dawkins Live in Brisbane. But his, his anecdote about this is this, this, and you may tell me if I'm mangling, mangling it, but the, the scientist who had spent his entire life trying to defend uh, this particular quirk of, I think, evolutionary theory and a younger scientist was giving a big presentation to a packed out lecture hall that was going to demolish this old guy's ideas. Uh, and he gave the presentation and the old guy who was in the lecture hall got up and walked down to the front uh, and everyone sort of held their breath as if he were, there was going to be a big showdown. And the old guy shook his hand ferociously and said, thank you for proving me wrong. I've been wrong all of these years. And for Dawkins, that's the the ultimate example of what science is versus superstition or faith or tribal beliefs. And that's the avatar towards which we should all aspire. Right, because a, a real scientist, think about this. If you're a perfect scientist, and that, that guy sounds pretty close, what are you doing with science? Science is a method of discovering the truth. And it's collaborative over generations and over over space and time. And so... They're on the same team looking for the same truth, right? And so if someone disproves your thing, you say, oh, okay, I, I added my hypothesis. You've shown it was wrong. Okay, we're, we all just went a little bit. We just took a step forward together. Um, but, but of course, what so many scientists do is they get stuck in their, they, they become attached to their hypothesis, they, their theory, because it, their ego gets involved. Their primitive mind gets involved. And so their higher mind might be saying, great, let's find the truth. But their primitive mind is saying, that the- that theory is part of me, and that theory being true is part of my self esteem and part of my reputation, and and so they will defend it. And what does that do? It makes them a much worse scientist. It makes them a much worse thinker. And of course, that's um, it's not just scientists. But you can apply this thing to all of us, right? Like we all have times when we are thinking with our higher minds, and we're and, and we're we're much more humble. We're willing to change our mind. We're not emotional or attached about our ideas, and that 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 makes us a hyper you know, hyper-efficient learning machine, 
right? And if you just have, if you can get in that habit, you, you become one of those people that knows so much, but we also struggle. It's like a tug of war. So often we will find ourselves just not just fully identifying with our ideas, but doing it with others. So our friends and us, we all agree. We all sit around talking about how right we are and how right those other dumb, how wrong those other dumb people, bad people are. And when we're doing that, we've, we've gotten caught into kind of our primitive minds have banded together into kind of an ancient tribal ritual. And all of us have stopped learning. And we're giving away the amazing human ability to learn. We're giving that away and in favor of kind of, you know, pounding a bag of Skittles, an intellectual Skittles, <laughs> by talking about how smart and righteous and good we are. And, and, um, and so that's a tug of war in all of our heads. Mm. And some of us are better at being on the high rungs of the, so the ladder to me is when you're on the top of the ladder, when you're, when your higher mind is just running your, the show in your head, which happens to all of us. Sometimes you're in a really good thinking zone. You're at the top rung of the ladder. Now, as the primitive mind starts to enter the, the, the equation, you start to go to drift down to those middle rungs when you're in the tug of war and you can feel the influence of both. And then a lot of times our primitive mind just totally takes over and we are, com we are completely consumed with, you know, tribalism, intellectual tribalism. You know, we are, we are totally identified with our ideas. We, there's nothing that could change our mind. Deep down, we, we know if you ask us that there's not actually anything that can make us say, I think I'm wrong about this. Okay, now we're at the bottom of the ladder. We're on the low rungs of the ladder. Mm. And so this, these two terms, that thinking, you know, high rung thinking and low rung thinking, that's this vertical axis that I think we need. And so when someone says, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I, I, I'm a center left person or I'm on the far right. Okay, that's a horizontal statement. Great. But that, that doesn't tell me how you got there. If, if that person is a high rung thinker and they're on the far right, I'm thinking, okay, so this person has done a lot of thinking. They've been willing to change their mind. They probably changed their mind a lot of times. And after a lot of evidence, they've come to believe that, that, that staunch conservatism is the way to go. I'm regardless of whether I agree, I want to listen to that person. That's interesting. Okay. So mm. let's talk. Same if they're on the far left or in the center or wherever, if that same person, I can tell that they're just there because this is who they are. They are a red Republican or they are a centrist. It's not just the right and left. It can be a centrist. And that's just part of their identity is being that thing. I don't care what they have to say because it's yeah. not real information. By the way, I can tell them every single position they Name an issue. I can tell you that person's position. It's like a they computer. Yeah, it's a computer spitting out some uh, some pre preordained uh, conceits. It, I, and I think it's it's really worth remembering in the in the wake of the how terrible conversations have been over the past few years, particularly around the pandemic and social justice. That the key here is how why we believe the things we believe. Like why? How did you arrive at the at the belief? I I did a a solo podcast, like a soapbox, I call it, about what I got wrong about COVID. And it was, you know, the amount of hate that I got back from the, uh, you know, the, I suppose COVID, con I don't want to call them conspiracy theorists, from people who think that the react the global reaction to COVID was completely uh, manufactured or even uh, invented or concocted or that the whole thing was a conspiracy. The... The point that I had been making was I've become renowned among certain circles in the wake of having been on Joe Rogan's show in in January of 2022 and gotten into an argument with him about myocarditis as a result of vaccines as being like the person who thinks there's no side effects from vaccines, which is not true at all. I just followed the data on that. My point has always been that in 2021, as 
Delta and Omicron were exploding and hospitals were still struggling to deal with it, it was not correct at the time to be more concerned about heart inflammation from our mRNA vaccines than you were about the spread of the disease. We didn't know enough back then. We knew enough to know that they were broadly safe. And the correct kind of epistemological position at the time was to cautiously be in favour of vaccinating as many people as quickly as possible in 2021. Now, in 2023, my position can afford to be more nuanced. There's a lot more data. I would encourage males under the age of 50 not to get mRNA vaccines, but to opt for AstraZeneca or Novavax if they can, although they should still get. So anyway, I'm not going to go down that whole rabbit hole. But the the point that I was trying to make in what I got wrong about COVID was a stopped clock is right twice a day. If you've been banging on about MR, if you're banging on about mRNA vaccines and the damage that they can do to young male hearts now, that may be all well and good. And you may be absolutely correct about your data, but you weren't right to be banging on about that 18 months ago because it matters why you believe what you believe and how you got there. And the only reason why you were banging on about it in the middle of 2021 is because your tribe was banging on about it and it gave you a sense of identity to be located in the pandemic in relation to the pandemic the way that you wanted to be related. It was not a rational position. You might, like, it's 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 entirely possible to be right for the wrong reasons is what I'm saying. Totally agree, because what you're saying is... Um, if, if two people say today that what you just said about mRNA vaccines and the, the risks, one of them might be way up in the high rungs saying it, and another one might be in the low rungs. And that is all the difference in the world. In fact, that's what we should be focusing on. Like, mm. what, what, like in general, we should, if, if, our, each of our goal should be to just climb this ladder in our heads as much as possible. But secondly, when you see someone, when you talk to someone who disagrees with you, but they, they're doing it from kind of a high rung perspective, that person is way more an ally of yours in the long run and in the, in the quest for knowledge and whatever than someone who happens to agree with you who's right. doing it in a tribal yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, you, anything, could, you, could teach, per- you could teach Coco the gorilla to say the, right, the true things about mRNA vaccines. You know, it wouldn't mean that Coco has a great understanding or is good at, is good at reason. Exactly. And, and again, a, a good litmus test is, you know, if, if this is the kind of person where when they tell you they're you know, for, an, for Americans, if an American tells me their view on abortion and I know that I could immediately tell you their position without knowing anything else about them on guns, on climate change, on immigration, on tax policy, who, are, who, who they voted for in the last election – that to me is not a thinker. There's no thinking happening. Right. Um, you know, you know right. maybe out of a, a hundred high rung thinkers, you will have one that happens to have come down the entire <laughs> checklist in one way. Very unusual. It's just yeah. un, it's unlikely. These issues yeah. are really. And by the way, they probably won't be so nuanced as just to have a clear yes, higher taxes. Right. No. You and know, yes. I mean, abortion. If like, anyone they'll needs also pr- have a hundred things to say about it. If anyone needs proof of that, Tim, just look at how quickly the mob can turn. Look at the, what the Republican Party's attitude towards. Medicare and Social Security or international relations has done in less than six years. They've gone from being, 
you know, uh, interventionist hawks to being largely isolationist. They've gone from being Russia haters to Russia lovers. They've gone from being we need to cut Social Security and Medicare to get the budget in check to being we're never going to touch these things. And what, all all at exactly the same time, and I could make similar arguments of, you know, of groupthink on the left. I don't mean to just say that it's a Republican phenomenon, but in the United States, that's it's more market there. But And all at the same time, everyone has independently concluded that all of these positions were wrong and that they should actually modify them? Of course not. It's a herd stampede. Correct. I mean, also, I mean, you could say, uh, yeah, during the Obama years, all you heard was from the left was, um, I mean, from the right was that the the, the deficit, the deficit, the debt. Right. Right. And then Trump comes in office and silence, radio silence on that as as this this continues to balloon. Um, You know, I don't know, five, five, seven years ago, most people on the left in the U.S., most you know, pretty pretty fervent, you know, tribal leftists in the U.S. would have said, you know, colorblindness is great, right? right. Judge a person right. by the their character, not their not their skin color, right? And um, and today that entire group has shifted and said the worst thing you can be is colorblind, mm. right? And it's not that they all independently thought about it and came around. It was that they're uh, down on the low rungs. Um, the checklist has been, you know, uh, has has switched and changed, and 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 all the people just kind of without thinking go along with it, and then suddenly, you know, will try to, you know, will hugely criticize scathingly anyone who has the view they had six years ago. Yeah. So yeah. you know, and 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 usually, by the way, these people, whether it's the left or right or center, these people that are that that are getting their their viewpoints from a checklist, that are unwilling to change their mind, that are doing their thinking with their primitive mind, and again, I don't mean to be looking down upon them because I've been there. Um, when, when people oh, are down there, <laughs> when, when, the, uh, when people are down there, these are also people who are usually very bad at debating. You know, they, they, they have more conviction than anyone. These are the people who, uh, it's funny because on the high rungs, they have a lot more actual knowledge and they can hold their own in a debate usually, mm. but they'll often say, I don't know. But on the low rungs, they say, oh, I know. And not only do I know, but I know that anyone who disagrees with this is an awful person. Meanwhile, if you try to have an actual debate with them, a substantive one, they'll resort to, they'll either avoid it or they'll resort to ad hominem attacks mm. and, you know, things like that because they're, they don't actually have very much knowledge. So they have this unearned conviction, this tremendous amount of unearned conviction. And that's because the primitive mind is just wired that way. Yeah, fervently believe stuff that, that it has no good reason to believe this. It's and, not very smart. That's and why some, it also I mean, hinges on Skittles. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And sometimes there are some issues that are so thorny and so resistant to simplification that the people on the lower rungs, as you said, I mean, avoidance, I'm glad you said that because it's not just, you know, people will often say the modern environment, the modern cultural climate and social media make everybody more hostile and make us more extreme. And that's that's true to some degree. The algorithms are extremification machines. But they also tangle some of us up into such a pickle that we just have to avoid entire topics now. Like we, we really are not engaging on the challenge between equity and equality that you just pointed to. Are we going to treat people, you know, without regarding their skin color and ethnicity as being salient? Should that still be an aspiration? It's very hard to find people to talk sensibly about that. It's also hard to find people to talk sensibly about, you know, the fact that, again, six or seven years ago, it would have been a, a foundational principle of being on the left, that there's something fundamental to the experience of being a woman in having grown up as a girl in a sexist world. And that the 
norm of, of allowing women to have women's only spaces and to define themselves however they collectively want to is an utmost principle of the left. Now you throw in the question of, well, what is the category of woman and do people who were born biologically male but who feel female inside uh, get to dictate the trajectory of that cohort? Well, we want to be really nice to trans people because we don't want to be bigots. And that is such a scramble and it's so difficult to unpick that rather than actually do the legwork of trying to nod it out and go, okay, well, what are the big values that we really care about, like human agency and autonomy and compassion and how can we reconcile those values with the facts on the ground, it's much easier to just say, "Uh, maybe we're not going to touch that. So that you either don't touch it or you're a firebrand. Well, but but it's also it's each of these issues, right? They're incredibly complicated. They need that you know we get wise together if we can talk about stuff, if we can argue, if we can be if we can be unafraid to be wrong, or even play devil's advocate and argue with something we know is wrong because it's interesting and seeing what happens. Um, there's so much nuance here, and if you think about what does it say when a person or a group is not just uh, you know instead of disagreeing. They actually try to shut down conversation. They try to make it taboo to even talk about it. It tells me that it's like if if someone feels confident that they have the truth, they love an argument. They love to talk about it. They bring it on, you know. I, I, mm. I and so it tells me that that that, that it's it, it usually again it correlates with people who are very bad at arguing at something, and they don't actually they don't really know how to argue for their own beliefs. And so it's it's um it's like if if. If you put your, you know, if, if, if the way you can test ideas is to throw them in the boxing ring with other ideas, there, there's, there's, you know, there's people who will try to box your ideas, which is great. And then there's people who try to ban boxing, right? Ban boxing and try to make it uncomfortable. The fact that it's not, a, it's, it doesn't just happen by itself. When you're saying these issues are really hard to talk about, that doesn't happen by itself. It happens because some people in the society are making it really scary to talk about by, by trying to punish people who talk about them without, unless they, unless they say the exact viewpoint that is approved. Right. Uh, right. And so what that all, it doesn't serve trans people or women. It doesn't serve people of color. It doesn't serve, um, you know, a, a, any of the people that supposedly are being protected here. It's not helpful to make t- topics, uh, discussion about these nuanced issues that affect them taboo. All it does is it just makes people dig their heels into these unnuanced one-dimensional narratives that actually, if you look at plenty of statistics, these narratives don't help. Yeah. They don't help the people that they're trying to help. You've got a nice little cartoon in the book, Tim, uh, with uh, a person standing in front of a big boxer uh, saying, this is the best boxer in the world. And another person says, wow, cool. Uh, how, who, who has he beaten? And uh, the other person says, no one. He's never fought anyone. And the other person says, then how do you know he's the best boxer in the world? And the other person says, I can just tell. And that's basically what we're doing to our beloved beliefs. We don't actually have to subject them to the rigorous scrutiny of getting in the ring, uh, because to do so would be to to undignify them and to dignify our opponents with with time. uh, And and you know our beliefs are too good uh, and too noble uh, to be put under that kind of withering criticism. And as a result, we quarantine them and they atrophy. And as the old saying goes, if you don't really know why you believe what you b- believe, then you don't know. Uh, sorry, you know, if, if you if you're you're not allowed allowing your belief to be critiqued by opponents, and if you're not practicing criticizing your opponent's beliefs, then you don't really know why you believe what you believe either. 
And by the way, lots of young people in the U.S. at least, and I think probably in Australia and England and other places, they're being taught at places like universities and in, and in high schools and middle schools. They're being taught by teachers and by others that like this concept that argument is violence, that dissent is violence, that disagreement is rude and is harmful and dangerous and disagree. And what they're basically being taught by grownups is that boxing is bad. You know, metaphorical intellectual boxing is bad. And so what they're doing is they're creating these people, these, these, they're, they're, they're training little kids to be bad thinkers to, you know, it's like, you should be training them on the opposite, like teaching them how to argue and how to defend their ideas and how to, you know, evaluate evidence and, you know, um, and that's how you, you create robust, you know, truth finding grownups. Tim, and, how, do, how do you um, respond? They're, 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 so the, the, I'm just trying to always keep, you know, on my shoulder, the ear of the reasonable woke person here. So the response that I can feel welling up in the woke part of me is it's all very well for like these privileged white dudes to get in the ring and to love wrestling with each other and to love the boxing match and the jousting and the verbal sparring. And you know who has to deal with the detritus that flies off them every time they punch each other? It's like the same groups of people who get shat on all the time. It's women of color, especially trans women of color. It's like, if, even though we might roll our eyes every time we're like, oh, but what about the, you know, what about the poor, you know, disenfranchised, disadvantaged people? The reality is that there are communities that just have to constantly cop a whole lot of shit. And so I guess the instinct of the person who wants the trigger warning in the university classroom or who wants to say that words are violence is the instinct of a person who says... Like, can we just, can we just stop having to hear the institutions of power and bigotry constantly, uh, like, force themselves upon us and ask us to defend why they shouldn't be continued to allow, to be allowed to pillage and and terrorize everybody? Like, it's exhausting. Is something you hear? You know, it's exhausting to constantly have to explain why equity and justice are good ideas. So your boxing ring is fantastic, but can we also create spaces in which people uh, can just sit and be with each other? Okay. Well, so here's what I would say because I, I I understand that. I, I mean, I see where it's coming from, and I've I've heard it before in person. And here's here's what I would say to that. The first thing is that it's not true that it's a bunch of white men being silenced. Uh, there's a lot of women and people of color who don't agree with the kind of woke orthodoxy who feel just as silenced. Um, a friend of mine, Coleman Hughes, he's a you know this great writer. You know he's a black guy, and he talked about being in class and having the white professor say something like, "Every black person, you know, is is a." you know, continual victim of racism. And he, and he said, you know, in his head, he's thinking, I don't feel that way. That doesn't match up with my lived experience. But he said, and he, you know, this was in an article he wrote, he said, but saying that out loud would have been tantamount to social suicide. Yeah. And that's, that's a black guy being silenced by a bunch of white people and a white professor. Indeed. And the pressure in fact, of them to, in fact, so, I mean, so, so as someone, as someone who has uh, quite a lot to do with the LGBTQIA plus community, I'll also just throw in that on this toxic issue of trans, where I'm constantly caricatured by both sides as being uh, in, in opposition to them and in opposition to the trans community, most of my trans friends want nothing to do with the fashionable orthodoxies on this. And most of my black friends don't want to thing to do, like are the least woke people they roll their eyes at it so it does strike me as being well, yeah that, that's quite that's a also, straight white at, university look at demographics uh, yeah it, it the it is it is 
remarkable how, you know, overwhelmingly white and well-off and college educated, um, a lot of the the most vocal woke people are, right? So it's, 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 it's this, it's a myth that it's a bunch of, you know, white men being silenced, conservative white men. It really is. That's just not true. It's, it's a lot of, it's a people of all demographics being silenced. Um, and the, the people doing the silencing are also of all demographics and most, and more often than not, they are white and, and quite privileged themselves. That's the very, that's, so that's the first thing. The second thing that I think is more important is that there's this, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier when you talked about, you know, free speech has been, you know, the tool of a country that also did really bad things and whatever. To me, this is major, major um, uh, misstep. It's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so, first of all, like people like to argue, you're not, your free speech isn't being taken away, right? The First Amendment still holds, the government's not arresting you, and that's true. But like I said, with a liberal democracy, there, there's two things that hold it together. There's the the rules and there you know the laws and there's the norms. So free to, to actually have free speech and and have it work the way it should, which is a vibrant discourse, right? That makes it makes us smarter over time. You need two things. You need the First Amendment, but you also need a culture of free speech. So when you have a group of people that are punishing people for saying the wrong thing, that you might as well be taking away the First Amendment because you are going to chill free speech. So. The, the reason I think this is bad is that if you look at, I think, look at history, look at American history, every single successful social justice movement from women's suffrage to the 60s civil rights movement to the, the uh, gay marriage movement, every single one of them not only used but completely relied on free speech. Free speech was the engine of mm -hmm. those movements. Mm -hmm. Free speech, think about it. Free speech is the, the, the majority has their vote. The wealthy have their money. The elite have their connections. The powerless, they have none of those things. The one thing they have is they have free speech. They can create a mind-changing movement. If they're, if they're on their, the side of, of justice and they're on the side of truth, which the civil rights movement was and the gay rights movement was, the, if, you're on the, if, you, if you have you know, actual kind of good, good on your side, free speech is your best friend and you will, you will over time change minds and change the world and change the way things yeah. are. So this also, idea that let me just add to that, Tim. Is the I mean, I, this often comes up when we're talking about religious freedom questions, uh, right? You know, in this in Australia, like in the states, there are questions about when religious freedom bumps up against uh, gay rights. Uh, you know, there's there's there there's been a. Uh, an ongoing thing here, you know, it, people will be familiar with the the kind of gay wedding cake example, the gay the the anti-gay baker scenario in the United States. In Australia, the similar thing is there are sports uh, leagues that have pride rounds where every player is supposed to wear a rainbow jersey. Now we have a lot of players uh, in football in Australian football here, not soccer, but uh, you know, oval-shaped ball uh, mostly, who are from Pacific Island nations, who are quite Christian and who object to homosexuality. How much should we, as a society, accommodate the homophobic views of sports players? in refusing to participate in pride rounds. My attitude is always as much as we humanly can in the sense of being as as generous as possible to people's deeply held beliefs. Most of my colleagues think that, that this is untenable and those people are guilty of hate speech and they they should be effectively silenced or coerced into pretending to support gay rights. And my position is always similar to yours, Tim, here, which is, 
what kind of a scenario do you think you're setting up if the rule moving forward is that what the majority thinks is what needs to be enforced upon everybody who dissents? By definition, the majority is generally riding roughshod over the rights of the minority. How do you think that we managed to get gay rights in the first place? It was in the in the face of majority opposition. The majority didn't want it. Like, if you want to support mi- minorities, then it seems a very peculiar way to go about doing that, to say, because the majority currently agrees with my particular vision of which minorities need to be supported and which don't, I think the majority should have the right to enforce its ethics on everybody else and prevent minorities from speaking out because those minorities are now the ones that we regard as being bigoted slash deviant slash wrong slash evil. Well, guess what? A generation ago, they thought gay people were all those things. Well, there's an arrogance to it. It's this idea that, that, that you know, people of totally perfectly good people of the past have been dramatically wrong. So, for example, one perfect example is in 1958 in the U.S., 4% of the country approved of interracial marriage. Four. 96% said it's immoral, it's, it's, it's wrong. Today, 94% of people approve of interracial marriage. So it's not that 96% of the country were bad people back then. I guarantee if you go back and talk to many of those 96%, you're going to see lovely people who are no less good than you. They just didn't have as much knowledge. They, had, they, they were wrong about something. And the, 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 what, what, what it entails, if you want to shut down free speech and you want to say that People who disagree with me should be silenced. What you're saying is that for the first time, we've reached a time when good people know the truth and that's it. There'll be, you know, we, we have it now. We got it. And that's just makes no sense. So there's, there's actually like a lack of humility, I think, there. And that doesn't mean that you can't have a moral stance and try to push for it, but you should try to push for it by convincing people, by being persuasive. You don't push for it by shutting down the discussion because Look any time in the past, and you're going to find discussions where um, that that we would see as completely primitive today. And there's nothing, there's no reason that we're not in the same situation. Right. So that that's the ladder. <laughs> We've gotten through one chapter so far of your seven chapter tome. Uh, what do you think is the most important thing to progress to? We can probably maybe the downward spiral or red golem. Yeah, I mean, the when I, when I talk about a downward spiral, I mean, this is to me what has been happening in a, in, in in Western countries. I, again, I, I focus on the U.S. because I know the most about it, but um, I think I, I do think Australia and and uh, England and you know cer- certain other places have have Canada have have um, have been mirroring a lot of the same trends. The downward spiral is is a way of reminding myself and others that is, I don't think there's really bad people in this story. I think that there's been an environmental change, um, a shift over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years that has, that is changing behavior. I think that the, that humans like any other animal, you know, it's when our, we react to our environment. And so I think that really, we talked a little about the media landscape changing. So you go from kind of broadcast national media to tribal, you know, narrow cast media. That's a giant seismic shift. You have the birth of social media. You have a bunch of, um, you know, political changes in the U.S. Uh, You know, you start to have the Congress being up for grabs every two years. You know, that's a that's a big change that makes it harder to compromise. So in the book, I get into a lot of reasons. But one of the things in the U.S. that's happened is that um, that that we, we haven't had a 
very scary national enemy for a long time. And that is a source of unity in the US, even if it's not a pretty thing, nationalism, it is a source of unity. Uh, and also the parties used to be much more mixed up ideologically, but they really kind of coalesced into very distinct ideological parties. And that also has an effect because it, it, it lights up that primitive mind in a lot of American sense. It turns things into a national kind of tribal war. Um, and I think that political tribalism in the U.S. and political bigotry is the number one kind of tribalism and bigotry at the moment. And, you know, the, an, an example I could use is, and of course, there'll be exceptions, but I think if you take 10 conservative white guys, and they're maybe even a little racist, right? And you have each of them, you know, you say you can, you know, who, who do you prefer, this conservative black guy or this woke white guy? I from my experience, at least, just talking to that, hundreds of people in the last few years, is that 10 out of 10 of those guys or 9 out of 10 are going to, they, they say, oh, I'll take that conservative black guy any day. That oh, guy's easily. my man. Not, not the, not the what, right. Because, because political tribalism is the much more intense kind of tribal. You know, mm, it, it, mm. it trumps racial tribalism. It trumps national tribalism, right? So I think that... Um, I think that people have to, you know, I think that we haven't really adjusted to that. We still think that, you know, the race and, and you know, xenophobia are the main things. And the, of course, they still exist. But it, there's this elephant in the room, which is that we've fallen into a complete craze of political bigotry and political tribalism. Mm. And that's real. And it's tearing the country apart. And so when I say it's a downward spiral, I picture a whirlpool, which is, you know, the media has changed, which affects how people think. But then the people demand certain things from the media. The people become more politically partisan and they they they, they are going to reward the media that does it. So they affect each other. And then the politicians are going to get elected by people who are who become more tribal. But then those politicians themselves are going to be spewing out more tribal things in their campaigns. And so they're all, these things are all in a downward spiral together, kind of swirling together down a vortex. And you know the data, you know the data, Tim, about how they've the the polling on when you ask progressive Americans their feelings about uh, it, well, like you know, staunchly democratic Americans, their feelings uh, about if their child brought home or married a conservative Republican. Their distaste for that exceeds people's reported white people's reported distaste for bringing home a black partner in like the fifties when they compare it. So we are more yeah, racist yeah, now exactly. towards our our political opponents than we ever were in the dark old days uh, towards other racial tribes, which is kind of shocking when you think about it. And it's it. genuine bigotry. It's genuine, you know, it's what is bigotry? It's giant, you know, it's making these broad negative stereotypes. It's dehumanizing people. Um, it's not caring about, you know, their suffering and or cheering for it. Uh, it's insulting them. It's, 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 it's mocking them. You know, it's that it's just classic bigotry, but we don't see it as bigotry because it's, you know, because, um, we just, it seems like it's fine. And of course, but, but of course, no one wants to think of themselves as a bigot. So it never feels like bigotry when you're doing it. So I'm sure the immense amount of racial bigotry that was, you know, that, that you'd find in the Southern, you know, US in the fifties, for example, I bet those people didn't feel like bigots, right? They have a lot of reasoning why, oh, this is okay. No, we're not being bad people. Of course, no one thinks of themselves as bad people. So today we see you know, racial bigots as bad people. Almost everyone sees that, you know, and, and that goes for the right and the left. Mm. Um, mm. But but we don't what we don't see when someone's saying that, you know, those those, you know, the, the those moron right wingers or those, you know, libtards, you know, we, we don't see it as bigotry, but it is. It's ugly. And it's and it's um it's 
it's it's causing a huge amount of problems. Tim, you know what? You're just making. I always feel so intellectually stimulated when I talk to you. I love you because the, I'm I'm now just thinking about Jonathan Haidt's work on our different values, right? And the values that conservatives versus liberals hold. And one of the things that is a foundational motivation of value, uh, according to Haidt, the social psychologist, is our sense of purity. Like uh, this is especially true amongst religious people and conservatives. That um, and this fuels xenophobic arguments. It fuels nationalist arguments. Uh, it it fuels uh, honor arguments. Purity, maintaining the purity of the of the tribe, and. Much racism and xenophobia in the past has been justified on that basis, right? We don't want we don't want you know black people uh, sullying our good upstanding community with their ways. They're going to make us impure. Now, transpose that motivation onto the modern left, for example. There is a lot of tapping into that instinct in what Trump is doing to us and what hate is doing to us and what the crassness of the rising American right is doing to us is sullying and impurifying our noble American smaller liberal tradition. Or go, go to a, uh, go to a college and you know, what are they, what, what's been happening there? Conservative speaker comes to campus and many hundreds of examples of this they either there's a huge protest enough beforehand that the event is canceled. And by the way, it's actually I, I, I'm wrong to say conservative because at least half of the people who have been disinvited have been progressives making the kind of points I'm making, kind of basic liberal arguing for basic liberal things, which conflicts you know conflicts with woke orthodoxy. The they either get the speaker disinvited or they will shout down the speaker in, so that the, no one can hear them until the event's canceled. Uh, professors have been fired for misstepping. Um, there, there, there's there's um, a lot of universities to hire even science professors. Now make them fill out a diversity statement, you know, quote diversity statement, which is actually basically a, a, a political litmus test to say, are you a proven social justice activist or else you can't be hired as a chemistry professor? Mm. What is that? That is the same thing. It is saying that this is a pure space and right. that if, if these other ideas they come in, they make it dangerous. They make it toxic, right? Toxic. Mm, That's mm. like a disease, right? How do you get rid you? Do, you want things to be pure, not toxic. It's right? amazing. This is sure exactly for professors. It's, ama- it's once you see it, it's so hard to unsee. And I'm just seeing it like I see, like I look at Richard Spencer saying that Islam coming into America is going to make America toxic. It's going to, it's going to sully, you know, the great American traditions. It is. It's a purity test. It's like we have to protect ourselves from the dirty outside. Yeah, you know, unwanted. It's an ugly notions. tribal instinct. It's an ugly part of humans to do this, and it doesn't matter if it's on the left or the right. It's ugly, and when we see it happening. By the way, I've I've never voted for a Republican, so when I criticize, I mean, it's like I'm not saying this out of a tribal kind of like. Um, it's it. I I. I it took me a while to kind of accept the fact that the people I thought of as my people were doing a lot of the ugly things. So and now, once I kind of Tim, just to give voice yeah. again to my little inner woke critic, right? There's. I'm reminded of uh, there was like a critique of Karl Popper or maybe a was it a Popperian idea that was going around a couple of years ago, which was uh, which was this con- this conceit that it was it went viral on Twitter for a while that it's naive to try to believe in unlimited free speech because the people who are going who are most going to manipulate that are people who want to put an end to free speech. So your t- if your tolerance extends so far, 
into tolerating intolerant people, you're just going to end up getting steamrolled by fascists because they're not going to give a shit about your tolerance and your free free speech and they're going to shut it down for everybody. So this idea of, oh, you know, the left, the woke left is being tribal in a way just like Richard Spencer is, which I just was guilty of saying, can't the retort to that be, well, hang on a second, at some point you have to draw a boundary around what is acceptable. Are we just going to be like, oh, you know, anti-Nazis are just so limited. They're just like Nazis because they're really excluding Nazis from being part of the conversation. Like how do you delineate the boundaries of what is and is not kosher without erecting some kind of a fence, a, a purity fence. So I'm really happy you brought this up because I actually talk about this in the book and I, and I think it's one of the most important. This is the kind of thing that when we are not having conversations, we can get really confused about. So <clears throat> Popper's paradox, very famous, and it's often paraphrased as in order to maintain a tolerant society, we must be intolerant of intolerance. Right. Now, the problem with that is tolerance and intolerance are not good or bad on their own, right? If, if you're tolerant of, you know, a, a cult where men marry eight-year-old girls, that's bad. You'd rather be intolerant, right? <laughs> right. It's good to be intolerant, right? If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're tolerant, of people who look different than you or different practice different rituals than you, that's good. We like that tolerance, right? So then being intolerant. So so the question is always, you can't just say intolerance. You'd say intolerance of what? Now, if you don't specify that, in, inevitably, everyone thinks that they're, that every everyone who's, whether they're being a bigot or not, thinks I'm being intolerant of intolerance. The, if you go to the you know dictators in other countries, when they jail dissidents, they jail people for saying the wrong thing or for the wrong religion. They never say we're jailing dissidents. They say we're being intolerant of intolerance. We're, we're jailing, you know, they, they, they basically use Popper's argument. And so, so it's twisted constantly to mean we're being intolerant of intolerance. And what they mean by that often in this case is, in, you know, they'll see right wing arguments as intolerant. Right. And, and, and so those are intolerant people. They'll say, you know, people who, um, who, you know, who disagree with me, that's intolerance. We have to be intolerant of it. Now, Popper's paradox is longer than that. And what he's, and he actually says, and I have it here, he said, he says he doesn't imply that we should suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies as long as we can counter them by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion. Suppression would certainly be unwise, but we should claim the right to suppress them if necessary, even by force, for it may turn out that they're not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument. They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument because it's deceptive and teach them to answer arguments by use of by use of their fistols or pistols. Sorry, mm. their fists or pistols. But we fistols should therefore claim in the better. name of fistols and pistols. So I like th- it. That's going to so be my important. next book. Yeah, it's so important because he specifically is saying that the that we shouldn't be intolerant of intolerant philosophies. We should be intolerant of people who are trying to shut down all argument. Right. That is what his part, and that's so. And so, so in other words, so we should be intolerant people, of the people who are tweeting about <laughs> Popper's paradox. Yes, correct. It's 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 so so. I did. I have a comic, and and I, I I show that you know someone says something right, and then another person says those are intolerant ideas. Popper said we have to be intolerant of intolerance. Stop him from talking, and I circle the stop him from talking, and I say that's what Popper actually said. We have to right, be intolerant of right. is to stop him from talking. So so anyway, it's 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 frustrating because in the Twitter sphere, you know, you don't get you can't 
I just explained that for three minutes and read a quote. Like you mm, don't have mm. the time for that. So people, yeah. you know, that's why you end up with, you know, something like cancel culture, which is a direct violation of Popper's paradox being, um, being argued as, again, people say that the people who defend a cancellation, they say, we're just being intolerant of intolerance. Actually, you're doing the exact thing that mm. Popper said we should mm. be intolerant Or it's of. just consequences. So it's, it's just, uh, it's yeah. just facing consequences. Uh, but again, I come back right. to Singer's, Singer's point of like, the consequence of saying something stupid or wrong or malevolent should be that another person says something that corrects you. And yes, they can slap you down in so doing, and people can feel free to, uh, to choose not to associate with you. But once you start coordinating public mob campaigns to have you stripped of your livelihood or, you know, excluded from society because you touched a subject or because you said or did something and you and that and your critics are not actually addressing the thing that you said. They're simply saying, prima facie the fact that you said it is reasons for mob exclusion. That's the that's Well to the put issue. terms to it, we could say criticism culture attacks ideas. That enriches discussion. It's good. It helps lift up the best ideas. Cancel culture punishes people for saying the things. So cancel culture shuts down discussion. It protects it protects the ideas and the, it protects the ideas of the culturally powerful. You know, criticism is a staple of liberalism. Cancel culture is the epitome of illiberalism. So they're actually opposite things. But if we don't, if we can't define our terms, then it just seems like oh, someone who's criticizing cancel culture well now they're doing the cancellation and it, you know you can see how very quickly mm. you can just get confused here but it, these are these are distinct and opposite things criticism yeah. and cancellation i saw someone denying that uh, that cancel culture existed on social media because louis ck just played madison square garden therefore he hasn't been canceled uh, <laughs> i'm like well they, they also say cute. that about joe rogan they say that you know joe rogan and jordan peterson are on these huge platforms saying their things, it obviously doesn't exist. But what I would say to that is, that sounds to me like someone saying, oh, Obama was president. Obviously, racism isn't a thing. Oh, right. Caitlyn Jenner was on the cover yeah. of, of Vogue magazine. Obviously, transgender people don't face any problems anymore. Right. Just because big-time people on big stages can 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 survive and 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 does not mean there's not a giant problem. Also, just be, I mean, those giant people have to carve out their own shtick i mean not in the case of rogan he has a relationship with a big company spotify but it's a big new tech company he's not being published in the new york times and probably wouldn't be uh if even if he wanted to be and you know the fact that louis ck like still has hands and legs and like a head and is capable of going onto the internet and selling tickets to and that madison square garden will rent out its space to him does not mean that there haven't been consequences for him in the fact that none of his shows are on any major streaming platforms anymore and you can't get his can't see his movie anywhere and you can't get any of his stuff through any mechanism other than his own chutzpah and and nous like what would constitute cancel culture you'd have to behead him and cut his hands off and then he wouldn't be right, able to go exactly. and play play the garden anymore okay exactly and it's 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 just it seems like there's this willful denial like that there's a problem and is as opposed to just taking a look at it and being like this isn't how like it's scary it shouldn't be a liberal democracy shouldn't be a such a scary place and the thing that that bothers me is that part of the reason i've always felt progressive is and the thing that, the reason it resonates with so many young people a lot of young people come out of really strict rigid households and they love to go to college and join and become progressive where and because progressive is supposed to be a safe space to be yourself to be different to be weird to mess up and and it's supposed to um 
you know, to encourage difference and stuff. And, and, and instead what, you know, what, what, what at least, you know, what, what people would criticize, you know, the woke movement of doing is being the opposite of that, of, of, of severe penalties for infraction and for enforcing conformity and for making being weird, being weird kind of intellectually to be bad, mm, dangerous. Mm. And so to me, it is, it is it's complete perversion of progressivism. It's, it's, it's the same exact kind of thing that people try to escape from rigid conservative, you know, households to escape, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's what people make fun of conservatives for. And, and so I, I think that, if if you feel like if you if someone agrees with me about what I just said about you know a safe space to be wrong is good, and they still feel like tribally aligned with the left, I think it's worth examining that and saying the left d- doesn't deserve my loyalty just because they're the left. They have to earn that like anything else by being upholding the values that I care about. Yeah, and I- if they're not upholding those values, I'm not going to go with them. I'm staying here where my values are, and they can come back to me or not. But, well, that's right. But also, yeah. I would encourage you not to give up the mantle of the left to them. Don't let the don't let people who are who are illiberal and unjust and have no interest in in equality, fairness, um, free argumentation, freedom of thought to to take up a word like the the left. I mean, they're, they're not. They can go and make and their also own thing. D- and don't go swing one eighty. Sometimes people go. 180 and they become tribal on the right you know exactly. or vice versa that's right that's and sort of what i was th- 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 joking th- don't about do that either james right? Lindsay, yeah, yeah and 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 the like um uh you just said something interesting which is it's it's scary the left is getting scary the thing is it's only scary if you're not a conformist if you're a conformist there's comfort in tribalism there's comfort in not having to think things through too closely. There's comfort in not having to do the intellectual legwork of trying to figure out why you believe what you believe, but knowing that you're on the right side of history through your inherited kind of beliefs through osmos through the osmosis of the correct tribe. Um, how do you? I mean, are you confident that the scariness of we're in this tug of war, right? That there are the people like you and me who want nothing more than to tease out disagreement, figure out what is true, get our hands dirty in conversation, think as abstractly as possible, question everything. And for for people like that, the modern moment is extremely scary. But for the people who are the witch hunters, it's nice. So who has the balance of power, and at what point do you know does does the tyranny of the witch hunt become so widespread that there are enough people who are scared that they push back, and how do they do so collectively without being picked off one by one? Well, I, I think one of the things I think most of the people who are you know in the mob, we could say, or who who are really enforcing the scariness. I've talked to a lot of them. I had multiple of people like that read my book um, and give me feedback. And shockingly, because remember, if you're, if, if you're thinking those people are all awful, you're being a bigot, right? Shockingly, when you actually talk to them, people get to know them. Most of these are good people. Most of these people are, they got into this because they're empathetic. They want to help. They want to do social justice, right? They, 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 they want to uh, do the right thing. And, I think that a lot of them have kind of been suckered into a, a, what, what is not uh, what they think it is. And, you know, you talked about, forget, forget the fact that I, I would say that it's not good for the social justice causes. I don't think it's good for black people. I don't think it's good for women or trans people like we talked about a little bit. But forget that. 
I don't think it's good for the people, the witch hunters themselves. You mentioned some of these things. People have these deep needs for, for meaning, for purpose, for identity, for community, for, for the feeling of righteousness, for self-esteem, right? And what a movement like this and a million other movements and cults and religions, what they often do is it's like a, it's like a get rich quick, quick scheme. Right, it's 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 a snake oil. They, they it promises you all those things in one one stop shop. You're going to come here, and suddenly you have your community. You know who you are. You know what your opinions are. You have strong opinions. You can sound smart. You have your community. You have meaning. You have purpose. You know why you get up in the morning. You're good, right? And it's not true. It's not what it doesn't. Of course, those things are much harder to find in life. You don't just get those things with a get with a weight loss pill, right? And so, I think it it leaves a lot of these people, first of all, stuck in fret in kind of social situations when they're scared to act up they, there's a lot of they, they they probably feel the most pressure of all i know that from talking to a bunch of them but also you just end up feeling empty in the end because you know you, you it, it is not all those things it can't be and so I, I think that part of it is trying to without attacking people who are doing this to try to call them in you know you know it's a, you know it's what the the, the the best you know movements in the world are the the, the common humanity movements, they're, they're the effective ones. Pauli Murray and the civil rights activist said, when my, my opponents draw a circle to exclude me, I'll draw a bigger circle to include them. Mm. Um, and, you know, so that's what I think. I, I think don't, I think it's better to try to um, communicate some of these ideas that, 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 that you, I don't, you know, you're not, you're not a bad person. You're trying to do the right thing. Here's why I think it's misguided. And here's why I also think that, you know, it isn't good for you. It's not what you think it is. And, and um, I, I think that can go a long way. Of course, other people might say that's naive and you just have to get angry and have to show force and strength against strength. And I think that's true too. I think that people in companies, CEOs that are being bullied by their, you know, their, their employees or Twitter mob or whatever, I think they should very strongly say, not apologize, not pander, not fire the person that they deep down don't think, doesn't think she should be fired, but the mob does. They should say, no, that's not how we do things here. And that we need more of that. And some people have shown that, but not that many. Tim, do you have enough time to, uh, to go for a little bit longer or do you have a hard out? Uh, no, I have time. Great. I want to talk about the cycle of good times and bad times because towards the end you you sort of try to reinvoke the stakes of uh, of of the book by saying that societies tend to have good times and then they go stupid and the stupidity causes them to enter periods of bad times and then those bad times through necessity require that they get their shit together and become wise and that wisdom then uh, pulls them out of the hole and gets them back into a into a good time, you're worried that we can't really afford the luxury of entering bad times in the 21st century. Yeah, I, I think if this is what I talked about, you know, earlier on with the liberal democracy is this, this pretty like magical artificial invention. You know, we're living inside of these, these human constructs that protect us from other humans, protect us from, um, from violence and and you know mob mob rule and warlords and all the bad things that can happen in in human societies, um, and and that 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 didn't happen by accident. That's, just, that's not just the way things are. That's something that we made through tons of trial and error, and it can only it it, it it's it needs to be upheld not just by the laws but by the norms and by people defending it. And I think that 
that, you know, it was built in the first place, modern liberal democracies, by people who understood how bad it can be and how bad tyranny is. And they didn't do a perfect job. And these democracies have not been perfect. There's been a lot of oppression and unfairness, of course, but they've been a better than the alternative. And at least so far, you know, and um, and so I think that wise they these were built by wise people in a lot of ways. They're you know not just by wise people, but by accumulated wisdom going all the way back to the agora, like you talked about. Um, and that you know after you know the fifties, I think after World War II, you know in some ways you had you had people who appreciated you know what they had, and and I think that that starts to fade when you don't have a threat and times are good for too long and. You were born in a time when everything was stable. And by the way, your parents also were only born in a time when everything was stable. You know, the boomers haven't experienced that much real fear of, you know, they had some fear of the Soviet Union maybe or, you know, things like that. But 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 really, they they felt pretty secure and things have been good. I mean, things are good for too long. You start to get cocky. You start to take the, the thing you have for granted. And it can't survive that. It actually can't survive. It, we need to be a little bit more scared of losing what we have. Um, and so it creates this merry-go-round where... Wise people create good times because they they they're they're so aware of how bad it can be, and they 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 they're not cocky about it. But then good times can create foolish, complacent, cocky people, and those people can 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 let things drift to very bad times. Mm. And because we're in such a high tech time, we talked about page one thousand. Well, page one thousand one, the good times can be even better, and the bad times can be even scarier, like existentially really scary. We don't want to mess with bad times in a world where we have so much power and so much tech. So how do we, we yeah, yeah. how do we, how do you do that? Because, and we haven't really talked about social media, but the elephant in the room, my great fear is that as long as our conversations and our attention and our capacity to follow the thread of important ideas is mediated by algorithms whose sole goal is to keep us addicted to notifications and to sharing and engaging as much as possible, that that metric makes it very hard to skip over and to, to, to migrate straight from being foolish clowns to being wise people. How do we do it? Okay. But you know, like even what you just said, if you said that eight years ago, people would have raised an eyebrow. What? Like social media is bad. You know, maybe, maybe not eight, maybe 12 Mm, years ago, mm. people would say social media is where you go to post about your, post your pictures from your vacation. And, you know, and it brings people together. together. Yeah. It's, 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 it's great. It's just this like silly, fun thing we do. Right. So today, the fact that you would say that, and almost everyone listening would probably shake, you know, nod their head and say, yeah, these things are bad. The algorithms are bad. You know, we all saw, or a lot of us saw the social dilemma that, you know, that Tristan Harris movie and, um, um, you know, the, so right there, that's progress. That's the first step. You know, the, the, you're really in trouble when you don't realize something bad can even happen. in right, a certain thing. Right. We're, we, we are much more wary and things are changing. And so the way I would say it is like, I, I think that it's not just so obvious that we're just heading off the foolish cliff. I think that there is wisdom here and it, and it is in a battle with kind of foolishness. And to me, the big metric that is going to help the, the kind of why the wisdom win out is discourse. You know, we, we are no individual humans that's smart, but when we're communicating and talking and disagreeing with each other and proving each other's theories right and wrong, that's when we can have some collective wisdom and we need it right now, so, which is why, that's why my, I keep coming back to stuff like free speech. It's not that I think, you know, something like wokeness in particular is like the worst thing ever. I think it's a symptom 
I think it's a, it's a symptom of a time that a movement could do such damage to free discourse. Right. And it's the same thing. I, it's not that Trump is the devil. It's that the, I, we're in a time when we're vulnerable to demagogues. That's what, that's what the Trump phenomenon tells me. And so to me, because we want to be wise, right, and discourse is the way to be wise, we have to push back no matter what your beliefs, no matter where you are horizontally on the what you think axis, you got to push back against people that are making it scary to, to be wrong, scary to put out ideas and to disagree. That's like the number one thing. It's like we have to be able to just freely talk. And, and so when someone is, you know, something like cancel culture, it's not a joke. It's real and it's, it, it has, it's scary because it makes our society dumber at a time when we really can't afford to, to become kind of dumb. Mm. The antidote or one antidote that you leave people with at the end of the book is is courage, basically, is becoming aware of this, but I think we've done a good job of identifying this problem and, artic- and you've done a great job of articulating the sense that people might have if it's just an ineffable kind of vague sense that something is broken about the way that we're conversing with each other at the moment. The courage, you break courage into three sort of challenges. Uh, the, the challenge to stop sta- saying stuff that you don't believe, the challenge to start saying what you really think in private with people you know well, and the challenge to then go public. It sounds a bit like a coming out. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, it's, I mean, what, what, why is coming out so hard? Because there is an orthodoxy that your coming out will violate and the people who hold that orthodoxy are going to have a strong negative reaction and maybe cut ties with you and maybe worse. This is not different in that regard. It's not that it's as hard being, you know, um, having, holding, uh, it's not that it's as hard holding opposing political views to, to the orthodoxy as it is being gay, right? It's not that it's the same, but it's the same concept, which is that it's not easy. Humans can get, become pretty scary and we all care a lot about what other people think. We're wired to. I mean, I, as, so, a, as a know, gay person, about, I will well, allow you to make the analogy and I would actually go further and say that in, <laughs> in, progr- in large cities, in large generally progressive cities in the Western world in 2023, it's easier to come out as gay than it is to come out as the opposite political tribe or to question the orthodoxies of the political tribe that you're around. Yeah, because political bigotry and political tribalism has become the number one kind. So that's the scariest kind to defy. At any given point in history, go back and whatever the main kind of tribalism is, you know, go back to the to the 50s and try to talk about how maybe the Soviet Union is okay. You're you're out of a job, right? Because national right. tribalism was the big thing then. Right. So this is what this is our thing now is this kind of conservative versus progressive tri- tribalism. Um and uh, and so I, I think that it, that's what re- requires a lot of courage. But here's the cool thing about it is that, you know, the Iranian women throwing their hijabs in the fire, that is uh, just a total different level of courage, right? M- you know, defying the Maoists in the 60s, you know, the, the, there's, you know, de- de- whatever it is, you can, you know, name any, try to defy the Nazis, defy the, the fascists in Italy when they're in power. That's different because they will kill you, right? They will put you in jail. So the, good, the, the interesting thing today is we have a lot of the same fear of, of, of saying what we think because we're wired to care almost as much about being ostracized and, and people criticizing us as we, as we are about physical danger, but it's not actually nearly as dangerous. And so there's a soft power that is, a, that is kind of the scary thing here, not a hard power. That's a big difference. Yeah. And so 
I think a lot of people have to realize that if they started just saying what they believe, the sky's not going to fall on their head. Like probably nothing will happen. And actually there's a good chance that a lot of other people have been secretly thinking those things too. And the people will have a ton of respect for them for saying out loud what everyone's thinking. And so it's good to remember that like the fear we feel is often the primitive, our primitive mind, which remember doesn't know that we're not in a little tribe in 50,000 BC where being hated can mean death. It doesn't know that. And that actually, that's a lot of what's doing the thinking here. And it's not very, it's not actually doesn't map onto reality and that courage, um, you don't need as much courage as you think you do to start representing who you really are publicly. You're probably not a terrible person. Mm. If you start saying what you really think, you're probably going to find a lot of other also good people who say, you know what, I kind of agree with that. Um, now, some people are going to get fired from their jobs. You know, I have a friend who is a teacher who said if he even says anything about some of the kind of woke policies that he thinks are really bad at the school that are being enacted, which he thinks are bad for, you know, just the kids and everything. He says if he mentions that he's out of a job, he'll lose his health insurance. He has two kids. He can't afford it. I'm not talking about him. I'm not asking him to be courageous. I'm talking about everyone else. And most of us will be fine, you know, if we start speaking up, even just with our friends. So, but yeah, the very first thing is stop saying things you don't believe. Because so much of the problem here is people parroting what's popular and saying what, you know, saying the things that that are popular, that that are going to get a lot of likes or retweets or that are going to get people to think you're a good person and they don't really believe it. And that's, mm. that's part of the problem. That's what makes it seem like a, an actual minority view um, is the majority view. Yeah. It's not. I mean, part of the problem is there there are actual penalties to not saying what, like to refraining. It's becoming a thought policing. It's becoming quite Stalinist in the sense that, as you say, you might be going for an academic position and you'll be required to sign a document about your commitment to a specific set of diversity, equity and inclusion policies that go way beyond just saying that you believe that all people, you know, should be free from discrimination and violence. That's McCarthyism. Yeah. That's a political I mean, loyalty. Similarly, we in, had those in the 50s. In I mean, Australia now, it's it's necessary at every public event and every, every meeting and every Zoom meeting and every conference and everywhere to do an acknowledgement of country, which means uh, like a land acknowledgement of uh, First Nations uh, people. And you know, there's a general sense of, or, or like, you know, putting pronouns in a person's, in your email signature. These, these are little gestures that most people regard as being, uh, like, why wouldn't, why would you be so mean and ornery as to object? But there's just something inside me that just feels like there's a, there's a, there's something unhealthy about jumping on bandwagons, even if the bandwagon is a good one. There's something unhealthy about unthinkingly joining what, you know, some of the people who are doing it might regard as being a fad at best and objectionable at worst. Um, or deranged. <laughs> yeah, I think worst. it doesn't matter what it's like you said. I think it's it's actually becomes I think if you're a good liberal, lowercase liberal, right? You stand up for liberal values. I think it doesn't, it becomes irrelevant what is being forced. Mm. I think if, if you know, there was a story after, you know, the George Floyd riots, there was a woman who said that her boss said to her, you're not posting about this on your social media. And that's a problem on your personal social media. Right. Right. I think that it doesn't matter what the boss is saying to her. It could be saying post about how great America is, post about how, you know, bad cop shootings are, post about how great Christianity is. It doesn't matter what it is the answer should be no because it's mm. illiberal it is a it doesn't matter what the loyalty political loyalty oath is it doesn't matter if it's exactly down the middle with my politics you know again i'm i i feel strongly about kind of classic liberalism 
if I'm at the university and they're saying, we don't want Marxists here, we're going to make sure we don't get any, we're going to, um, we're going to do a, a test. And they, if they're not a strong liberal like us, then they're mm. not going to, I would pr- protest that just as much as anything else, because it's not about what it is. This is, it was wrong. It's illiberal. So, it's, um, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, think, it's I like, the, right it's also like the wearing, like the requiring football players to wear a rainbow Jersey uh, in order to play in the game. I mean, that it smacks of the same kind of thing. I understand the instinct that like, let's all the, the liberal, the smaller liberal thing to do is to demonstrate to LGBTQIA plus youth that we're on their side and that we're not bigoted. But in order to do that, you're requiring another person to become an instrument in your social goal. And they don't want to be an instrument in your social goal. They disagree with that particular social goal. They're not going out and beating young gay people. They just want to be able to not have to proactively support the rainbow ideology. They're Christians. And by like, the way, they, they might agree with your social goal and choose to not express it in this context. That's it's, right. It's, it's not your business. What, what you know, and and it's this coercion. It's this, it's this very, and that's that's just very illiberal. It's this with us or against us kind mm. of tone of 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 um really um mobbish movements. And sometimes is, sometimes it's just the, I mean, sometimes all it is is fatuous and absurd. Like I I live in one of the most progressive neighborhoods in uh in Australia, in the inner west of Sydney, uh, which is sort of, you know, think Bushwick or uh like Williamsburg. It's got, you know, hipster hipster areas. And uh, when I got back here from the the States a few years ago, I saw that on all of the street signs, the local council has put up a sign underneath the street name that says, say no to racism or racism not welcome here. Now, these are highly multi-ethnic neighborhoods with an extremely progressive and anti-racist population. The only racism that exists here is the racism of white liberals dripping with sanctimony about how anti-racist they are. The idea that it's necessary to put taxpayer money into congratulating ourselves for stamping out racism in the least redneck part of the entire country is like, that's almost like a kind of forced speech. Like, I don't want to what are we? It's kind of like putting a cross. It's probably kind of like putting the, a cross up in a in a Christian right theology, exactly you know, theocracy. Yeah, you know that's right. That's right. And, and the, yeah, and the bigger thing is that you know that if any city council member had said, eh, I, "I actually don't think that's what we should be doing." They mm. would have been in big trouble, and that's partially why it happens. I mean, no, everyone's scared to push back. Tim, my own friend, I was walking along the street, and I pointed to it. I was, I like scoffed and rolled my eyes, and she was like, "What?" I said the sign. She was like, "What do you mean? Aren't you? Don't you oppose racism?" I was like, "Of course I oppose racism. Why do we need a sign?" But yeah, it's a, so. There's so first comes the awakening, then comes the coming out. I guess, uh, Tim. I want to ask you. Yeah, first, I mean, I, 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 yeah. I want to ask you first date questions, which is a way that I always uh, just pepper the guest with some raw shark questions to get the first thing that comes into their mind. Uh, uh, and uh, allow the listener to understand them a, a little better. What uh, is the best meal that you've ever had? Um, probably um, I had Chinese, which is my favorite cuisine, Chinese food, and then I had uh, the best I've ever had was in Hong Kong mm. um, and this like little side of the road thing. And I just remember being like, this is the best that food could ever be. <laughs> okay, so actual Chinese, actual Cantonese food, not American it, Chinese. No, no. What it, about it, American it, Chinese? It, no, it was, pretty, it, was, it was pretty similar to the Americanized. That's why oh, okay. I liked it. I actually <laughs> prefer but it was just so incredibly good. Okay, so the Kung Pao chicken and the 
Like, oh uh, my god, yeah, yeah. Okay, all that shit. Uh, what what skill have you always wanted to learn? That was just a little taste of our first date questions, which you'll be able to hear all of if you subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations. Not just the questions, but of course all of our banter around them, which become a subsequent little episode of themselves. Uh, If you do subscribe, you will not only hear that, but you'll also hear no ads on any episode ever. And you'll get additional content, including opportunities to connect directly with me. You can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com or follow the links in uh, the uh, the podcast description. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you next time on Uncomfortable Conversations. Mm-hmm.